Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, over the years, a couple years that we've been doing this, we've done a number of podcasts related to the North Atlantic right whale. Yes, we have. Uh, Quite a few. And in our focus of the discussion so far, and I think we've had six shows, uh, Michael Asaro, the NIMPS Takes Reduction Team Manager for this species, uh, has been on, with, and we've had David Abel on, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter from the Boston Globe and documentarian. Uh, who's recently released a film called Entangled about the North Atlantic right whale, and uh, Patrice McCarran and folks up in Maine. And uh, today we're going to expand the discussion a little bit. Well, that's right, Peter. You know, one of the things that we learned in the course of talking with uh, Dr. Acero is the range of these incredible animals yeah. that uh, live, they're kind of a coastal whale that kind of uh, traverse the the eastern seaboard of the United States, and because they do, they interface with our, our, our civilization, the American economy, our ships, our ports, uh, our Lobster. fisheries, yeah. uh, in, in major ways, and uh, this, of course, has not bode well for the, uh, for the North Atlantic right whale. Uh, there's only a few, what are there? Fewer than 400. Th- fewer than 400 left, uh, and we're going to discuss that today a little bit as well as getting to know two awesome guests. Well, we do have great guests here. We're talking about uh, the North Atlantic right whale, but in its southern range. Uh, As you said, it's migratory. It heads down the Atlantic seaboard from Nova Scotia and the Gulf of Maine, all the way down to Savannah, Georgia, and the Jacksonville, Florida area. Uh, It's calving grounds, as I understand it, but we'll learn more about it. But we've got two real experts on this topic who work very hard to try to save these incredible animals. Uh, I want to welcome to the show Paulita Bennett Martin. She is a field representative in the Georgia campaign of Oceana, which is the largest international ocean conservation organization in the world, headquartered in DC, but Paulita is joining us from Savannah, Georgia. And also on the show today, uh, another great guest, Kathy Sackis, who is the president of the Tybee Island Marine Science Foundation. Uh, she is formerly the education coordinator for the Graves Reef National Marine Sanctuary. And here's some cool stuff. She is a licensed submersible pilot and an aquanaut. And I'm really wow. interested in learning about her experiences as an ocean conservationist Uh So really, really happy to kick this show off with two great guests on the southern range of the North Atlantic right whale. Well, we have a moment to lose. So uh, let's have a quick word from our sponsors, Peter, before getting into it. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. Dune Science Group. 
Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the show, Paulita, and welcome to the show, Kathy. Appreciate you taking the time out of Whale Week, which I understand is a incredible event you guys are in the middle of that uh, promotes the conservation of these whales. Thank you for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, uh, I'll start uh, with Paulita. Uh, really excited to learn about Whale Week and... Uh, all that you've done here in the third year of this cool program. But before we get to it, let's start learning a little bit more about you. How did you come to be in this position with Oceana? What is your uh, background and connection with the ocean? Absolutely. Um, So, well, it's a long relationship. I got my start with the oceans looking out my bedroom window as a small child in Belize City. And so um, that's where I spent my formative years and then lived through the southeastern U.S., always on the coast, always in a a beach town, and always with a strong curiosity of the ocean. So I went to college to study marine geosciences and international development, looking at coastal development and island uh, development. And lo and behold, part of my uh, studies during university days was with Oceana, looking at marine plastics, And when they realized that I was relocating to Georgia, I wound up with a position representing the organization in the state of Georgia. So it's been a long winding road of relationship with the ocean and the critters in the water. Uh, It sounds extraordinary. And I have to say, having been to Bailey's City and dove some off off of uh, Bailey's, what an extraordinary place to grow up that must have been. Absolutely. It's one of the most beautiful places in the world, in in my opinion. (laughs) <laughs> Tell us a little bit about uh, that shift from Belize to Georgia. Uh, what was that shift like for you? And and what kind of struck you as, as relatable and different? And I mean, tell us about that. Sure. I like that question a lot. And, and this is why. There are so many similarities through the, I think, southern coastal areas of the U.S. and through the Mesoamerican and Caribbean communities like Belize, uh, foodways, culture, music, etc. So I almost feel right at home when I got to, to Savannah. So I had lived in Atlanta for a little while and went to university there, went to Georgia State University and then Emory University. Mm. And that is a huge shift, culturally speaking, and, and visually and everything. And it was four hours from the nearest ocean. Um, so I felt like I was drying out, if you will. And um, <laughs> I got to move out to Savannah. And just the, the pace here, 
um, the challenges that we face here with, with weather, um, with development, all of it, very similar to what I experienced in working through the Caribbean. Because while, I, while I, my family is from Belize, I actually have also worked in St. Thomas, um, St. Croix, St. John. So I've been wow. through the Caribbean region for years. And there's a lot of um, common sites and a lot of common interests and, you know, getting to know the, say, the fishing communities that are here in the Southeast U.S. Um, it's interesting because while we may be fishing for different, um, different fish from each community, it's still that culture, it's still that, that sort of pace to life that gets a lot done, but isn't in a hurry. And I'm not sure exactly how to tease that out anymore, but it, it's it's laid back, but at the same time, there's still a lot being done. Kind of connected, um, kind of connected as well. In you know, from a you know the the hurricane perspective as well. Uh, absolutely. You know, definitely close by regionally. You know, you know, in the same zone, but definitely connected by those big storms. Definitely, that's one of the challenges, right? And I think we grow used to it, uh, but there's only so so much used to it you can get as these storm seasons start to intensify and have more storms and stronger storms than ever. Well, it's an extraordinary uh, storyline. What an amazing uh, professional, uh, personal and professional uh, pathway you have followed. I'm envious of all of it, <laughs> the places you've gotten to, uh, to be. And you've teamed up with an extraordinary advocate in Kathy Sackis. And Kathy, I was looking at your bio and I was the same feeling. I was just amazed at what you have done in your career as an ocean advocate. Uh, Can you introduce yourself to the audience a little bit? And I have to say, can you talk a little bit about your being a submersible pilot and an aquanaut? I just love it. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, first of all, let me follow up with Paulita. Um, yeah, uh, diving on on the uh, the barrier reef just off of Belize was probably one of the most extraordinary uh, dives I've ever done. I was, uh, I gosh, I think I was at 120 feet, and I didn't even know it. I was just, I was just so transfixed with how beautiful it was. Uh, just what a great place to grow up. So I am a professional interpretive naturalist, but my background is science. And so, uh, but I also have, was blessed with the gift of gab, as they say. And so when I was asked to come and work at uh, NOAA Grays Reef National Green Sanctuary, um, the superintendent, I, I at first applied for the research position, but he said, no, 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 I really need you to, to uh, be the education communications person. And uh, I said, all right, well, if you pay me the same money, I'll do it. And so he <laughs> did. So um, that's how I got into communications with a science background. It's, you know, oftentimes I would describe myself as an ocean translator, ocean science translator, because it's one thing if you're a researcher to, you know, do the research, but if you can't really communicate that to the people that, and the general public, you know, your information is not really getting out there. So my job was to take the research, make it understandable so that everybody could understand what 
the significance of the research was. And so part of my job was to support the science team by diving. And I, I'm a diver, a certified diver. And so um, when it, when uh, it was a $5 million grant was secured by Dr. Sylvia Earle um, through the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund, she turned it back into the sanctuaries and the sanctuary, she said, okay, what we need to do is to explore. We want everybody to explore their, their reefs. Well, um, so because I was also a communicator, I got a coveted position. <laughs> so I, yeah, I know. I was pretty excited. I got to train uh, to be a, a, a submersible pilot, which means that um, I had to go to out to Monterey Bay and, and down to Key West to do the training. That was fine. Those are really cool places. But off the coast of Georgia, um, you know, the my reef was only 70 feet deep. So it's not that big of a deal to dive that, you know, I mean, shoot, you can dive to 130 yeah, feet with scuba tanks, right? And uh, so anyway, um, I said, all right, well, I will use the my time in the submersible for doing night dives. And so that was really cool because, you know, night dives are a little bit more dicey because uh, you really can't see things coming. And um, anyway, so I my specialty was to go down at night and um, and in the dark of night and, and just sit on the bottom and turn the entire sub, just shut it down and just sit. And then I was treated to the most amazing, wow. amazing light display of wow. bioluminescence you've ever seen. And what was really cool, the first time I did it, I chose a ledge and, uh, and I specifically made a mental note of what the ledge looked like in my lights, in my sublights, so that I would have a, an idea of maybe what I was seeing with the bioluminescence. And so when I turned the lights off and sat there, it takes a while for your eyes to adjust. Uh, the first thing you see are the tinafores, the little right. cone jellies yep. uh, hitting, hitting the, the dome of your sub. And it looks like little tiny fireworks going off all over the place. That was cool enough. But then uh, what happened was right down the reef top, uh, it looked like I was a giant looking down on a Lilliputian village because as my eyes adjusted, all of the lights started popping up all the way down the reef top. And then what was surprising were the vertical lines of bioluminescence going up. And I, it took me a while to figure out that those were the tentacles of worms that were um, the feeding tentacles of the, of, you know, um, the, um, uh, the sedentary worms that were sending up their feeding tentacles wow. and, and they were bioluminescing too. So it was, it was extraordinary. I, I'll, you know, oh, and then the other cool thing was as I turned my lights back on, a hammerhead came in and the hammerhead was particularly drawn to the lights and to my dome. So here I am sitting in this dome with an inch of plexiglass dome between me and the shark who, who just kept rubbing on my dome. <laughs> so wow. here I'm, you know, you know, for, for a good half minute with the shark, uh, you know, going up and down the dome and, and, uh, I was pretty transfixed with that too, because you know you you 
you know shark skin, you know, you see, you feel it, but it's usually dead when you feel it, right? Well, here this living, breathing animal was so supple and so flexible and just so at ease in this environment. And I just recall seeing his skin, and it was a male, uh, seeing his skin ripple as it moved through the water. And I thought, wow. Wow. Yeah, how how beautiful. I'll never forget that. It was like this beige velvet. <laughs> you, know? you know, there are some experiences that uh you really you just kind of have to be there in person. Yeah, I, think. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. I was I'm I'm transfixed listening. Uh, <laughs> but I can only imagine what it would yeah, be like to be in that? that submersible there. Wow. Seeing that with your own, you know, experiencing that for realsies would be insane this this is why i think what's amazing tyler the people who work in ocean conservation and in coastal issues uh, this is why it's such an extraordinary career field it's because you talk to people and they have this kind of (laughs) experience i mean what an extraordinary uh uh, thing to do kathy and and would you please tell us a little bit about your experience as an aquanaut sure So the Aquanaut required uh, a good deal more um, technical training because uh, you are saturated. So uh, right now we're at one atmosphere. I assume that y'all are at sea level. So uh, 30 PSI. Okay. (laughs) So you're you're one one atmosphere. So when I saturated, my whole existence for 10 days was at two and a half atmospheres because I was in a a habitat called the Aquarius habitat. And it was um, in about 75 feet of water. That's where it was uh, situated. But from that Aquarius habitat, I would dive four hours in the morning and come back in, try to warm up. You never really warm up because you never really dry off. Uh, And then in the afternoon, afternoon, do another four hour dive. And we were diving on, um, you know, double tanks, and um, and I was doing work at 130 feet for four hours at a time. Wow. And um, the other the other kind of uh, issue, what, not issue really, but just work around was I was the only female with a with a team of uh, five other men and uh, or five men. <laughs> and so there were there was a little bit of, um, you know, for instance, uh, Everybody were was a world class snorer. <laughs> I just couldn't. I just couldn't see. My anybody. my wife could relate to that experience. Yeah. I, I'm sorry oh, to say. Lord. Anyway, so finally, one of the guys said, "Well, if you if you get to sleep, if you go to sleep before we do, will will you wake up if we start snoring?" I said, "Nope. I'll I'll you know I'll be dead to the world." So that was the workaround. I would go in a half an hour before them to the sleeping area, and then I would fall asleep. But some of the um, some of the extraordinary experiences were because I went in a half hour before they did. There was uh, there was a storm um, that happened, and um, there actually there were two storms. Uh, but this one storm was all lightning, and so one of the strikes hit the water, and I happened to be looking out the the porthole at the base of our feet, and the lightning was like this most electric blue you've ever seen. And you could, I could see it come down the water column, which is 75 feet and hit the sand, the very white sand. Oh, on the come bottom. on. And really? It just, and it just spread out into these like 
electric blue tentacles. That was probably the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen. Yeah. So six people in an, a submerged habitat at seventy-five feet of water. Where was this? Uh, how? Where was this? Uh, the Aquarius located? I think I've read about this. In fact, and yeah, and how big? I mean, six people in a for ten days underwater. That's that's a heck of a deal. Well, it's uh, it's extraordinary, <laughs> uh, and you can go online. You can just look up Aquarius habitat. And uh, who, whatever the mission is at the time, uh, you can actually you can actually look at the cameras that are trained on on the crew. Um, now, my job was to do um, was to do uh, podcast or, or broadcasts from underwater, and uh, <clears throat> we got into the very first one, and uh, and the. Um, um, well, let's see. No, let me back up. So, what what happened on the very first day was nine eleven. If you can, wow, yeah, I know it was, it was really unbelievable. We we they dropped us off the boat at uh, eight o'clock in the morning, and uh, we didn't come into the Aquarius habitat till noon. So, all of the pandemonium happening at the surface at the World Trade Centers were going on unbeknownst to us. And so, when we came up into the habitat at noon, our two techs, uh, we had two technicians that were assigned to keep us alive. Um, <laughs> and then there were two teams of two. And uh, and we all four of us came back up into the habitat. And then the tech told us. And I, I remember all of us looking at each other and going, well, that's not a very funny joke. That's really terrible. And um, so anyway, we uh, finally realized that it was not a joke and that we were they were going to give us um, a, an opportunity to um, call home to see if we needed to abort the mission. Uh, we called home. I was the first one to call home, and I reached my husband, and he said, in true Southern gentlemanly style, I said, dear, is everything okay? Do you need me to come home? And he goes, well, dear, it would seem that you're better off at the bottom of the ocean than you are right now at the surface, so you might as well stay. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, I, when I, this is this, you know, I think we've all had this experience where you're in a conversation with friends or family and or acquaintances. And the question is asked, well, where were you on 9-11? Right. Uh, I right. think you would have the most extraordinary answer of anybody. <laughs> I was at the bottom of the sea when that happened and living in the Aquarius habitat. That's got to be that's the answer well, that wins the award for. Wow. <laughs> But there were five other people there with me, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that is incredible, uh, Kathy. And, and thanks for thanks for sharing uh, those stories, both in the submersible sure. and in Aquarius. Uh, we're going to have to do a dedicated show, Peter, to Aquarius. That's I w- cool. This I would love to, actually. Is it still going on? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently and if, it is. Uh, if you work it right, I bet you could probably get a conversation with them down oh, there. I bet they'd oh, love it. Okay. You got it. Okay. That. Yes. The answer is you got to help yeah. us. We would love to interview guys, the, the people in Aquarius. Oh, my gosh. Anyway. Okay. okay so, <laughs> whale week. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, we're, we're, we're bringing it around into segment two here. And uh, I want to return, uh, Kathy to another one of your exploits really quickly here, because, uh, you know, the, the North Atlantic right whale, as we learned from Dr. Acero, Peter, is still relatively un, uh, 
understood. It's, we're still discovering. Science is still learning more and more about these animals. Uh, and Kathy, I understand that you are a part of that story in that you uh, discovered a calf. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Do you want to tell us that story and then we'll transition from that into Whale Week? Good. Yeah, so um, I, sometimes I feel like uh, the Forrest Gump of uh, coastal Georgia because I happen to be in the right place at the right time. And right? I do, F- Forrest Gump and, uh, was uh, filmed, I believe, in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. It's right downtown Savannah. He, that was the, the, the bench with the life as a box of chocolates, right on the Monterey Square right. bench. Anyway, so um, I happened to be on Little St. Simon's Island. I had uh, been hired to run the guest business or to start up the guest business on that very private island and uh, and the naturalist, be the naturalist too. And uh, my husband, then husband, was also naturalist. And uh, he happened to be off island that, that particular day, that night. And uh, I happened to be in the, the lodge. This was January, 1981. We didn't even have electricity over to the island yet. It was all generator and no cell phones at that time, no landlines, uh, it was all radio. So I happened to be in the lodge at the time and I received a call from the Coast Guard. Coast Guard said, um, can you identify whales? And I said, sure, you know, very tongue in cheek. They're big, I can identify whales. <laughs> anyway, he said, well, I need you to ground truth a pygmy sperm whale up at the north end. And I said, sure. So I ran up to the north end of the Jeep, saw this thing and I was like, holy crap, that is not a, that is not a pygmy sperm whale. That is a, uh, I didn't know what it was because I'd never seen a right whale before. And um, further, it had an umbilical cord. It was solid black, had no dorsal fin, and it had baleen. So it was not a toothed whale. So I had to run back to <laughs> my my uh, cottage and get my marine mammal book out. And I was like, I'll be doggone. That's a North Atlantic right whale. So I called the Coast Guard back, told them what I had. And they argued with me and they said, I said, it's a neonate North Atlantic. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. And uh, so I said, well, look. What do those guys know? I mean, I I love the Coast Guard, but honestly, when it comes to naturalists and whale identification, you go to the pros. I mean, you had the the book. Yeah, you had the book. You have the experience. I mean, come on. I assume that you won the argument. (laughs) So anyway. That turned out to be the um, uh, the first calf that was stranded in our area. Now, my understanding is that Georgia DNR had already seen a, a an adult North Atlantic right whale uh, in uh, coastal waters, Georgia coastal waters, maybe a month before. But this was confirmed. You know, this was the first stranding of a North Atlantic right whale. And so what this did was... The, the researchers up in New England at the New England Aquarium knew that uh, there were, at that time, there were, you know, maybe 50 or so, I don't know how many there were at the time, that they started working, uh, started cataloging North Atlantic right whales. But they knew that pregnant females would leave in the, in the fall and return in the spring with calves. They just didn't know where they were going to birth those calves. Well, it made sense for them to come down to our waters because our water temperature in the winter time is um, is warmer <laughs> than their water temperatures in the summertime, right? So mama's got about three feet of blubber. 
on her body, so she's fine, she's comfortable. But baby is born with just a smidgen of blubber. And so they need to be in relatively warm water, but mama can't be too much further south in warmer water because she'll swelter to death. So so we're the happy medium. Wow, we're good interesting. For mama, we're, we're good for baby, but baby, the calf, has to gain weight pretty rapidly. So the North Atlantic right whale in the milk is about 42% fat. Now think about that for just a minute. Heavy wow. cream is 40% fat. So this is 42% fat. So baby gains uh, about 200 pounds very quickly in about 10 days As, uh, per day, 200 pounds per day. And uh, so the only time that I ever knew that a right whale, a baby, a calf was nursing is uh, you can, when you're doing aerial surveys and you happen to be on a, a mother calf payer, and I did, I happened to be on a mother calf payer, uh, I mean, you know, over a mother and calf pair, and you could actually see an oil slick come up around the mother because as the calf was nursing, the milk was, was uh, some of it was leaking out of its mouth and it creates an oil slick around the pair. Wow. That's about, about the only way that you know that they're nursing. <laughs> Isn't that wild? <laughs> yes, it is. And, and what, you know, this is the reason I, I, I think it's always uh, something Tyler and I like to do is to get to know the people on the show when we talk about the work that you're doing now is it provides this background and motivation. And I have to say, Paulita, your experience and and being as a coastal, a real coastal uh, citizen, your entire professional life, and Kathy, the work that you have done, I have to think inspires your motivation and emotional connection to the work that you're doing now to try to protect these whales in their southern calving area. can you talk a little bit about, Paulita, can you tell us about Whale Week and what that is? And I, we're in the middle of it, by the way, as we're recording this. We're at the uh, the second to last day of Whale Week uh, going on in Georgia. Tell us about this campaign that you guys are doing and what you hope to accomplish with it. Absolutely. So Whale Week is is like a constellation of different organizations, educators, artists, um, all sorts of people that either you know specifically have a love for North Atlantic right whales and that story, um, or just a general love for the oceans. And this came about, um, I guess, let me back up for a second and say, this, this was inspired after I had the opportunity of swimming with a right whale in Florida. Ooh, and oh, wow. it wasn't it wasn't by choice. Um, I would not go out seeking to swim with one. But we were swimming off the coast of Miami and a right whale came up to us and uh, people that were there helped to identify it and everything. And I learned about at that point, I didn't know much about right whales. And this was a decade ago, over a decade ago. And I looked it up and I realized all the threats and challenges. And that one experience really made me feel um, connected and and wanting to care for and figure out how I could help the whale. And as I said and explained to you, I went through my education, wound up coming back to Georgia here to work and wound up saying, hey, you know, I'm here. This is where the right whales come to calve and what can we do? 
And we did a one night art show um, back three years ago now uh, that turned to be really, it turned out to be really well received. A lot of people showed up. Most of the art was auctioned off in one night. Uh, great crowd. And people were incredibly interested in the story of the North Atlantic right whale and how Georgia was uniquely part of that story. Um, so a lot of times people know, it seems like there's a little bit more of a push around awareness of whales up in the Northeast. And that story has been shown a lot. Um, and the connections and the science and the community is just bigger in the New England area. But down here, it's there. there's people that care and are interested, but maybe weren't necessarily uh, connecting around the story quite as much. So after that one night event, a few people got together and talked about what a success it was. How could we create more programming that wasn't just for adults at an art gallery, but maybe for more? And hence Whale Week was born so that we could create different events that reached different audiences. So that might include stuff for kids, um, classroom visits, educational stuff. It could uh, include scientific panel discussions, different type of experts coming together to talk about status, to talk of the whales, to talk about you know history of conservation. Uh, but then we also include artists in this because a lot of times when you look at conservation success stories like the Florida manatee, uh, when you combine other areas of, in, of popular culture like arts and music, you then create different avenues for people to connect with an issue, right? And so my, my job is often to figure out how to get people to connect with an issue so that they'll take action to protect that thing, whether it's the whales or some other ocean critter. And um, that's what Whale Week really is. It's about connecting everybody that has an interest in this. Um, I'll give you an example. This year we had an artist featured named Lisa D. Watson, who's out of Savannah. And um, she does a series called While Supplies Last. And it's all documenting endangered species from across the US. And she takes Ameri the symbols of American currency and then turns them into endangered species currency. So it's a really conceptual kind of story but it's just one more way for a different audience to connect with the story of the North Atlantic right whale. And I feel, you know, and a lot of the people that get together around Whale Week feel that we need everyone we can get in order to protect these whales, um, to, to, to voice their opinion on it and to take action when action can be taken, right? And also we need everyone that we can get to just begin to think more about our oceans, not as this, abstract area of the planet that's out there that we go to on the weekends, but that it actually plays a role in our life, in our day-to-day -day life, and that we consider it part of everything that we are. So that's what Whale Week is. It's, you know, in a way, trying to build stewardship. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, a couple things struck me, Peter, when we were prepping for the show. Uh, we were discussing how the North, interestingly, the North Atlantic right whale, the marine, the state marine mammal yeah. of, yes. of the state of Georgia. Interesting. I did not know that. And uh, hearing you describe the origins of uh, Whale Week, but also, you know, some of the programming that you have going on to, to 
this year, this week, it's clear that this event has grown and expanded and that the tentacles of interest have, have gone out into the community. And it really is. I mean, you've, you've assembled quite a list of, uh, events and programming. Could we go through it? Could we go through whale week just kind of as an overview for our audience about what, uh, has been on tap and remains on tap this week? Absolutely. Okay. I'll start from the top. Um, on Monday we kicked off whale week with this really awesome youth press conference. So students from a local organization called Loop It Up Savannah joined together with students from the Tybee Island Marine Academy and uh, the Susie King Taylor Community School. And they created their own talks on what they've learned about whales over the last few whale weeks. And they presented this to the press. So they were really the ones that opened up whale week and reminded people uh, one of their messages was really about when you're, you know, if you're out on the water, go slow, it's calving season, let's protect our whales. Um, so that happened on Monday. It had a great response. People, I think, really love seeing the kids um, get involved and feel empowered to, you know, explore these kinds of conservation and stewardship concepts. Then the next day, on Tuesday, we hosted a um, conservation history talk with the Georgia Conservancy, one of the main partners for Well Week. And they hosted a conversation on Facebook Live with Hans Neuhauser, who has been a part of this entire story with North Atlantic right whales in Georgia. And then we had a artist talk with Lisa D. Watson on Tuesday as well. Um, I believe most of these are on the Whaling Wall page on Facebook, so people can still see them. And then we had a Boston Harbor Cruises Whale Watch Tuesday evening with uh, Oceana and the Boston Harbor Cruises out of uh, the New England area. On Wednesday, we had a conservation status lunch conversation with Noah Gray's Reef um, and the National Marine Fisheries. So that was really interesting. It kind of brought everyone up to speed on the population status and how they determine that. Very sciencey talk. Uh, well, very well received again. And then yesterday we had a blowout amazing day because we had another whale conservation talk with the Georgia Aquarium, Dr. Alistair Dove, and we had uh, the Pew Charitable Trust join Georgia Conservancy for talking about current conservation efforts. We also had an event called Whales and Women hosted by the Tybee Island Marine Science Center, also one of the partners of Whale Week. And they hosted four different women from four different sectors of marine mammal conservation, disentanglement experts, scientists, um, and policy advocates. And then tonight there's an event um, that everyone can join. Uh, and it's, uh, well, we'll be airing this after that, but on Friday night, we have the Entangled Movie Screening uh, where we're hosting David Abel from Boston Globe. And we also have Georgia DNR's senior uh, biologist, Clay George, and Gib Brogan from Oceana. And then we close out with a, um, a reception that you can walk by because of uh, safety reasons. It's not really an open door event, but you can walk by the window of Sulphur Studios on Saturday and see the Wild Supplies last pop-up art exhibition. It will be installed in the window and there's an auction people can go online and bid on pieces from that series. So that's it. Uh, I think I covered 
11 or 12 events. Oh, and we also had a family paint party. So last night I went to a family paint party where uh, teachers taught people how to paint North Atlantic right whales. So there were people of all ages uh, with their watercolor kits that they received painting whales. Wow. Well, that sounds so an interesting blend there. What a cool week. Very cool week. Uh, Packed full of events and an interesting blend of virtual uh, events and in person, it sounds like. Uh, And I was really interested to hear about the the uh, New England Boston. That was interesting. So you've it's clearly it's I guess here's my question. You're organizing this event. It's the third one. And it's COVID. What is your yeah. approach? D- d- obviously, you know, it opens some doors because when you go virtual, all of a sudden you can really bring the, the Boston people in. But uh, what was that like? How did you approach the, the organizing this event during COVID? Yeah, well, I just said we're going to have to take everything for safety reasons. I did not want to put large groups of people together. Um, so we figured out different ways that we could do events online that would actually be interesting. And, you know, there's certain things that you can do online that are just going to be really flat. And then there are certain things that you can pull off. And man, we, I think we selected the right things. And uh, some of the events are, were private. Were, you had to get a Zoom pass to go to it because of having youth involved. Some of the events were um, live broadcast to the internet so that more people could um, access them. And we are actually taking a lot of these events and creating closed caption versions that'll go out this month as well. And I just think going online, even though it's not, it's never gonna be as good as the real thing as getting together with people, right? That's how we create the energy that we need, but I could tell from the events that I got to uh, be on that people are really benefiting beyond just the surface level of something to do. They're benefiting by connecting with each other and having these conversations and they're learning a lot and not, you know, again, not maybe just about North Atlantic right whales, but about the oceans as a whole. And they're also, building community even in a time where that's a really really tough thing to do and we need that community because we're the ones that help each other out to get these things accomplished it it really is the work of uh, coastal advocates all around the world and around the american shoreline is this kind of organizing and engagement to educate the public about critical ocean and coastal issues i've got to wonder you know when i when people think of georgia I, I doubt a lot of people think of, gee, that's the whale calving ground for the North Atlantic right whale, that there is a species that is near shore that is there every year. Um, when you're engaging the community in Savannah and uh, along the East Coast, uh, are people surprised to learn that this magnificent animal is present in their waters or is it kind of commonly known? What's been the uh, what's been the reaction? Hmm. I'll let Kathy answer this too, but for me in, in just kind of out general outreach events, I would say it's often a surprise unless you are just kind of a nature, you know, advocate or you're somebody that's an enthusiast or you're an oceans enthusiast. A nerd. 
<laughs> an ocean and coastal nerd. Yeah. They always know. I, they I know who's ask, around. <laughs> I did ask a lot of the students at different events because I was curious about that. And um, the students don't get an official, there's no official module that teaches kids in public schools about North Atlantic right whales. So unless a teacher is themselves interested in going to bring that into their classroom, then there's not really a, a place or time that you officially learn about it, right? Mm -hmm. And we do surveys at the end of Whale Week and we found that a lot of people didn't know they either knew nothing about the whale or very little. And this was their first experience kind of learning a lot more about the whale. Yeah, Kathy, I think it, well, I think it's uh, really, uh, when you look at, at Georgia is a really big state. As a matter of fact, it's the largest state east of the Mississippi land mass wise. Uh, and we've got a very short little news. coastline. We've only got a hundred plus mile coastline, right? And uh, <clears throat> a lot of people don't even realize that Georgia has a coast. There's that. And then, um, so so you have a uphill battle right from there. I mean, yeah. obviously, if you live on the coast, you know there's a coast, right? And so I agree with Paulita that if you're if you're uh, if you're somebody that really enjoys the ocean and wants to learn about the ocean, well, you're going to know about the North Atlantic right whale, but. We also, for a long time, did not promote that there were North Atlantic right whales down here. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is because the calving season is one of the most critical times in this, this very highly endangered, the you know, most endangered great whale in the world. Um, time, so you don't want to you don't want to alert people and have yeah. them going out and you know doing mm -hmm. uh, being close to them. But now we realize that okay, so so the population is up to you know about four hundred or so, um, and there is going to be interface. People are going to come into contact. And Paulita, that's great. I did not know that you had a per somehow I missed that in all these stories that you actually were. Uh, or had a close encounter with a North Atlantic right whale. That is that is very very cool, but at the same time, um, you know, there the one of the derndest things I've ever seen was on uh, posted on Facebook, I guess it was, and it was a um, it was a realtor, a guy that was trying to sell a property on off the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and he was on his personal boat. And a North Atlantic right whale popped up right next to him and was was um, you know staying at the surface. So he got his wife, I guess his wife or somebody with him, to tape, uh, you know, use the cell phone camera, and he did a commercial uh, right there on the spot on the bow of his what? boat with that North yeah with that North Atlantic right whale right next to the boat, and he said, "Now y'all got to come on down here because." You know, we've got wildlife. We've got huge wildlife. Look at this North Atlantic <laughs> right whale. And of course, he posted it on. on An American capitalist. I got to give him credit. Well, and so, of course, you know, this is highly illegal because the, oh. the federal law says you have to be 500 yards away from a, a right whale. And if one surfaces next to you, you have to, you have to back away. You have to slowly mm -hmm. back away. And here he was. And so... So uh, Noah, Noah, law enforcement got a hold of that one. <laughs> wow. 
Well, you know, I've got to ask, but before we get, I want to eventually here, before we wrap this show up, uh, talk to you, both of you a little bit about uh, organizing kind of the theory of, of change discussion here, kind of zoom way back up. But before we do, let's zoom right on in on the whale issue. Uh, Peter, we were over there in Savannah uh, for the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association yes. meeting. Um, and I was surprised to learn just how busy yeah. the port of Savannah was. One of the busiest ports in the yeah. southeast. Well, and- on, the, on the east coast, I think the number yeah. one container port uh, on the eastern seaboard. It is a major, major commercial port. Uh, and of course, shipping is one of the risks of these whales. Is uh, whale is uh, ship? That's ship where I'm strikes. going. I, yeah. I'm wondering if you know up. I'm wondering if there's uh, uh, if some of the techniques that they're using up in the northeast to slow ships down. If this is being done down on the Georgia coast to reduce uh, the ship strike threat for the whales. Yeah. So the so during the calving season. <clears throat> excuse me, all up and down the East Coast, the the ships, um, when they come in or out of port, so, you know, r- North Atlantic right whales are migrating north-south, or, or, yeah, north-south this time of year. In spring, they'll go south-north, but they, um, and, and the ships are coming in east-west, right? So they're, um, they have to slow down to 10 knots when, when they start coming in into port. They have to slow down 10 knots, and the the um, I, I saw this wonderful, very young engineer uh, who was having way too much fun with with his prototype. But he was uh, he did a, an amazing demonstration of how the how the survival rate of the North Atlantic right whale changes with just um, if the if the ships are going ten knots, then it literally just pushes the the bow uh, the bow sprint of a uh, a tanker, a container, a ship, uh, just literally pushes the whale off to the side. Hmm. But if it goes any faster than that, then it's a direct hit. And I've done necropsies on whales where, um, especially the North Atlantic right whale, because it's so black, I mean, it is solid black, except for maybe a little white patch around the stomach area, but um, you cannot tell if uh, that it's been damaged because you can't see the bruising and you can't see the broken bones until you actually do the necropsy where you go inside the whale to look to see what caused the death of the whale. So, you know, just a slight, slightly more, a higher speed than 10 knots uh, Mm -hmm. results in death results in a ship strike. What's called a ship strike. Right. Well, you know, the the uh, extraordinary it's it's amazing. And I want to just reiterate that there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 of these animals on the planet Earth. They're very precariously holding on uh, the risks to these whales at the National Marine Fisheries folks are working on are entanglement in nets. Of course, that's the subject matter of uh, David Abel's film Entanglement, which is a great uh, documentary film. Uh, and then the ship strike risk. And uh, is the Port of Savannah an active supporter of the measures to protect the right whales? Or uh, is this something that's on their uh, radar screen at all? Oh, of course it is. And I'll tell you this, uh, about a decade ago now, 
there was a, a mother and her calf and uh, something was wrong with the calf. And so the, the mother placed herself in between uh, her calf and a ship and no ships went in or out of the port of Savannah for three whole days. Wow. And, and you can imagine how much, how much that cost and uh, oh, yeah. in terms of human, you know, the shipping traffic, but yeah. to their credit, nobody got out there and tried to move that whale. They, they, you know, they, nobody, nobody wants to hurt the whales. That's not the shipping industries. Um, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that is not what they want to do. They want to do what is right for the whale. And so they willingly do the 10 knot. They reduce their speed to 10 knots. It's uh, uh, I, I worked with while I was in NOAA with Gray's Reef, I worked a lot with the um, with the education communications team to actually work with ship captains and bar uh, harbor pilots, uh, you know, anybody that was associated with the shipping industry. And I can tell you to a guy they didn't and it was all guys. They did not want to uh, do anything that would that would they would see a dead whale on their bowsprit. I, I believe that. And I, I will have to say it's it's good to hear that this is becoming widely adopted around the American shoreline. I know that in the Channel Islands uh, shipping channel there, Peter, that we passed through. Yeah, with the gray the, whales there and the blue whales there. Yeah, it's a migratory backs. zone. A bunch of, bunch of them going up and down there. They just saw orcas in there, too. Uh, and up in the San Francisco area out on the northeast and now learning about this this is good this is a this is good what we want to see this is what yeah, we want to see it's, teaming up to to do the right thing and and it's it it i believe there's all the added benefit of like the fuel economy i heard that there's some incentive that that maybe the national marine sanctuaries uh, works with these big shipping companies to make sure that it it pencils out but i i mean as a taxpayer I just think that this is so worth it and good, good job federal government doing this and building this out. This yeah. has happened over the past several decades. I and think, and so. good job, yeah. Port of Savannah and the advocacy organizations that uh, that you the community that you guys are a part of uh, to bring the awareness of these critical issues to the public. Super good. Oh. Super good stuff. Yeah. May I, may I say one more thing? Please do. Kathy. OK. Uh, uh, one other really incredible thing that happened with the North Atlantic right whales was up in uh, Cape Cod, up in the, the Boston uh, area. So Boston Harbor, of course, is another, you know, big tra- ship traffic area, right? And so, but that's also goes, the, the route into the port or out of the port um, was right, went right through the feeding grounds of the North Atlantic right whale. So, um, there was a staff person at Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary, and his name is Dave, and I cannot, I want to give him credit, but I cannot remember his last name right now. Oh, my. But anyway, um, so what he did was he looked, he did um, using, you know, global positioning system. He looked at um, at where the, the most strikes were occurring with ship traffic, and he reasoned that if he just, if they just moved the shipping lanes five miles north of where they were at the present time, that the, the number of strikes would be reduced by something like 80, 85%. And to the credit of Boston Harbor, they did it. 
<laughs> and that's yeah. that's tremendous. And it, it, yeah. it it really is. And and it, and it it you know I'm a big fan of the work that National Marine Fisheries does and the sanctuary systems, the estuarine research reserves, the professionals and the advocates along the shoreline who look out for these animals in our uh, coastal habitat and ocean health uh, and it really is true that there is often a quite a bit of cooperation yeah. between the advocacy community and the commercial interests on the shoreline uh, as you say the the shipping industry has no interest in having ship strikes and dead whales this is not in their interest and they work hard and i'm so pleased to hear it absolutely and I have two quick things I'd love to follow up with. Um, so a plug to Oceana is um, there, we've launched the ship speed watch and that's a tool that we'll be able to report out a lot on to monitor all of these issues that we're talking about with shipping in the different ports and areas of traffic. And that is available where you can go online and check out ship speed watch for yourself. There's several articles out currently about that. And the other thing that I wanted to also just flag that I think is important and I missed when I was telling you about all the events of Whale Week is this year we actually, part of our intention was also to drive as diverse um, a community as possible. So a new organization here in Georgia called the Susie King Taylor Women's Institute and Ecology Center uh, put together a really wonderful socially distanced small um, event on the water. And it was to service uh, black women in the Southeast who are conservationists and who approach conservation from different ways, whether it's professional advocacy research or through, um, inter to, through faith practices, right? And so that was something very new that a lot of people enjoyed seeing because it shows the shift in growth in the conservation community and how it's just, it's transforming. And that this whole body of work that we do around advocacy, it, it belongs to everybody, basically. You know, that, that is a perfect segue into uh, what I wanted to talk about next. You know, we're talking about these federal big federal programs with uh, 10 knots and these you know huge multi-million dollar ships moving around the global supply of goods and food and stuff uh and then we talk about uh polita and kathy uh whale week and this you know local grassroots organized out in the community approach and uh, I've talked about it before on this show. I, I I see so much strength at both ends of the spectrum here, both at the highest level, at the theoretical level. You know, our our policy leaders who are thinking about climate change and carbon and, and global energy and global population and, th and things just in a very big, high level. But it's solid work. I mean, I'm t these are very well-reasoned, smart people. And then I see the energy at the grassroots level which also strikes me as being incredibly powerful, incredibly strong, whether it's the Ventura County chapter of the Surfrider Foundation trying to bring down a, a, a dam with no budget and volunteers out picking up trash all the time or, you know, it just it's, it's just incredible to me how. Yeah. And, 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 and the, the near system where there's these friends of groups that 
are coupled with these reserves and just at in the mud as as we found yeah. out you got to have both and and so i'm wondering and this is my question really for both of you but i'll start with Polita. how do we connect these two things how do we connect the big high level picture with what's with the and the energy that's there and the thinking that's there the leadership that's mm-hmm. there with the grassroots stuff how do we do that that's a, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. But I think um, the things that seem to be working is really making more room for other people to cultivate their own spaces around these issues. So um, an example of that, like with Whale Week, right, is that um, – People may have a different approach to how they discuss issues. They may even have a different approach to the way that they want to confront these issues and work on them. And so treating each approach equally and with dignity and appreciation empowers. It allows people to be empowered and feel that they have a a role to play in conservation. A lot of times conservation has been... um, done in ways that are, are pretty removed from the masses, right? Land conservation, marine protected areas, et cetera. So it's about kind of taking things away. But really, um, that's not what conservation is. It's, it's about protecting it so that we have it for the future, so that we all have it. And so helping people to connect with, hey, you play a role in this too. Yes, decisions are made a lot of times when we're talking about oceans at a national level. However, those those national leaders are empowered by their constituents, or they are, uh, or they lose their power because right. of their constituents, right? And so, if we are organized enough to voice our opinions on things, and you know, demand, request or propose things, that's how we get, we can get things done, right? So like something tangible might be right now, there's the Save the Right Whales Act. Um, actually a Georgia Senator was the co-sponsor of that, Senator Johnny Isaacson, along with Senator Cory Booker out of New Jersey. Mm. And if people come to events or they feel like these are spaces that belong to them as well, then they learn about these things and they wind up taking their own role in advocating to their elected officials that we want this bill passed. We want this funding so that we can make sure that we get to safer fishing techniques like lineless fishing gear, et cetera. But we won't get there unless we have the money to figure out how to get it done, right? And so I think that's the thing is if you do conservation in a way that continuously pays uh, or is, yeah, pays respect and dignity to all people, then they're, then people feel more empowered. It's, it's that simple. But if everybody feels as though the NGOs have it all covered and all those decisions are being made up at the very top and I don't, I can't do anything about it, then we can't expect the grass. I don't even know if that's the right term. We can't expect the masses to get involved because they feel like it's someone else's job and that that's kind of a complex thing right with ocean conservation because a lot of times decisions like i said are made at national levels whereas like when we think about 
um, community, right? You have neighborhood associations. Not everyone in a neighborhood association is an expert of like community design, but we create these things for people, uh, stakeholders to come together and work to protect their neighborhood. And that's what we have to think like in ocean conservation is that you don't, it's not just for the experts. It's, it can be for all of us and we can help one another to advance the best way possible to protect our oceans. But Kathy, you probably have some even more. Well, that, was, well, that was extremely well said. My it goodness. was. I don't think I can uh, improve on that. But I will say this, <laughs> that when I have been asked by teachers or parents, what, you know, h- how can children, how can our children help out? And one of the, one of the, my, my immediate response is, teach children to be responsible for what leaves their hands. Now that's a very simple concept, mm-hmm. but when you think about it, it, it teaches responsibility. And then hopefully that will move on with them through life. I must be responsible for what leaves my hands. And so one of the, one of the little um, you know, movements right now is say no to the straw, right? Well, so mm-hmm. somebody, somebody said, all right, well, you know, one straw isn't going to make that big a difference, you know, good grief. Um, well, it, it, it does. It does make a difference. It reduces the amount of plastics that will be in the ocean, but it does something more, even more powerful, which is I can do this one action right now by myself. And so it, it, it empowers you because now you have a voice. Now you say, I don't want that straw. Do not serve, do not uh, give it to me. Um, and then you, hopefully you think about what that means behind that, that very positive, that very uh, active action. <laughs> you know, so. we, we overlook that a little bit and people can sometimes look down at that. Well, what the hell difference does it make if I get a straw on my Coke at the restaurant? Uh, but the fact of the matter is the hard truth of it is the problems that we face in, in, in conservation generally or use of resources on the planet is driven by our individual actions. And the answer to that has to involve individual action. It is the way you have to attack yes. it. And I have to say, Polita, I really appreciated your answer uh, to Tyler's question about how you connect the grassroots and the national policy, because I really do think that you answered it exactly. I, uh, it is a, a, truly a case where effective change and improvement in how we use uh, ocean and coastal resources uh, is an all-hands-on-deck exercise. We need the public in it. We need diverse yes. voices and communities. You have to have it. Because, as you say, that appreciation of these issues at the local level is what drives policy at the national level. And it's yes. so important, and I think what you guys are doing uh, with Whale Week is f- exactly the kind of effort that, uh, that it is needed, and we're, we're so glad to learn about it. Uh, but before we wrap up, there's a couple things I want to just a very quick question because I'm, I'm curious and I don't know the answer to this. And I know you guys had the science panel on Wednesday night because I'll tell you, that's the one I would have gone to. Uh, but uh, is how many how many calves are born on average in a year of North Atlantic right whales? Do we know the answer to that question? No, we don't. But we can predict. And here's how they predict. Um, so any any mother, any you know, in, in any 
species, especially the mammals, uh, you have to have a certain percentage of body fat to be able to, uh, you know, take the the fetus uh, all the way to full term. And with North Atlantic right whales, we're talking about a 13-month gestation period. Now, can you imagine wow. that uh, when you're when you're about ready to give birth, you got to swim 2,000 miles uh, to to your birthing, your to your calving grounds, and your and your the the, the, the calf that you're carrying. Uh, is almost 2,000 pounds. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's a big swim. Um, and so the, it, it depends on the condition of the mother, and the condition of the mother depends on how well she's fed. And um, so if there's a, if there's a, a you know, a, a deficit in the krill and copepod up in the feeding grounds, well, she's not going to be, uh, strong enough to carry that that uh, you know fertilized egg that the fetus uh, to full term. So one some years I think the lowest that we've ever seen was something like two calves born, and then the the most uh, I think was fourteen. Wow. So it it just depends, and and you know yeah, female like- has um, she only has a you know like thirty years of of viability as a, as a reproducing female and she only reproduces every five, six years. So. Right. So let, I mean, just think about that. And I think this is why, again, uh, your work is so important. Somewhere between two and 15 of these animals can be born in a year in a population, an adult population of somewhere around 400 and a percentage of which are female. I mean, this is such a precarious situation here. And uh, I just, again, I, you know, the, the, everything we can do, all hands on deck are necessary. This magnificent creature uh, deserves our attention and protection. Uh, before we wrap up, I'd like to, we always like to give people final thoughts. And uh, P- Pauletta, thank you again. I know you're in the middle of whale week, so you're busy people right now. But uh, final thoughts from you and then Kathy, closing thoughts from you. Sure. Um, Well, first, I just want to say thank you so much for making this conversation happen. It's another perfect and important part of this work that we do is getting the message out. So thank you very much for taking time to speak with us. Our pleasure. And um, I just hope everyone that that listens to this kind of conversation can pull something out about, about their connection to the ocean and why we really need to work to protect it for the future and to restore the parts that need a little love. That's all. Thank you. Happy holidays. <laughs> thank you. And Kathy, please. Yes. Thank you for including me uh, in this, this discussion. I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot from Paulita as always. Um, and so, you know, this is a political season and especially all eyes on the world literally are on Georgia right now. That is true. Uh, and so one of the ways that, that uh, you can make a statement, you can have your voice heard, is to vote for people who feel the same way you do or who are going to, um, who are going to follow the, the protocol, the policies that you want to see in place and take the time to learn which of the candidates are going to support 
measures that would that would help the North Atlantic right whale or help any you know any of the environmental efforts. It's very important. That's one way to to make your voice known is through your vote. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and just talking about it, you know, talking about it with other people, talking about how you feel. Um, and your love for the North Atlantic right whale. I mean, who who wouldn't love that? Right. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, but anyway, thank you very much, and I really appreciate y'all taking the effort and uh, and happy holidays. Everybody. Well, our pleasure, of course. And uh, Paulita, for those who want to learn more and follow the work that you do, I assume you can go to oceana.org. And for Whale Week, I guess is on Facebook. And uh, how can they? How can people learn more about your work? Yes, of course. Okay, so you can definitely go to Oceana. Our right whale campaign with Oceana is oceana.org forward slash right whale to save. And you can also get involved in Whale Week just by going to whaleweek.org. All the info's online. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is Paulita Bennett Martin, the field representative for the uh, Georgia campaign of Oceana, and Kathy Sackis, the president of the Tybee Island Marine science foundation aquanaut licensed submersible pilot and an extraordinary ocean advocate it what a pleasure to talk to both of yeah. you and we really appreciate you taking time out of a busy week to join us on the american shoreline podcast and have a great holiday season you guys Is it sad to build a hotel?